I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this is Writers on Writing. My guest today is memoirist Tad Friend, author of In the Early Times, A Life Reframed. Tad is a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker. His memoir, Cheerful Money, Me, My Family in the Last Days of Wasp Splendor, was chosen as one of the year's best books by The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle, and NPR. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife, Amanda Hesser, the founder of Food 52, and their twins, Walker and Addison. In our conversation, we talked about backstory versus front story, getting to the truth in memoir, revision, and so much more. And if you like what you hear today and you find that it helps you with your own writing, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Every little bit helps Marie and I continue doing the show. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Now for the show. Pat, it's great to talk with you. I, um, I should say that I became familiar with this book in the early times, um, your memoir, um, from a New Yorker essay that came out in April that, um, that I was sort of transfixed by. And as soon as I read the essay, like, I have to, I have to read this book. Um, will, will you talk a little bit about how the memoir came about? Sure. Um, the essay in the New Yorker was sort of a, a post facto thing that came from trying to hew from the book <laughs> a piece that would feel, uh, would have the effect that it seems to have had on you, which is the idea of like, oh, I want to go read the book, but also should feel, um, complete in and of itself. But the beginning of the book at the other end of the process was, um, me realizing in a kind of gradual and sudden way as, as one does that my dad was getting old and failing physically. Um, and that there wasn't sort of much time left with him and that I realized as I thought about that, that, um, I was distant from him and I wanted to be closer to him and I wanted to understand him better. And I wanted to answer some of the questions that had been sort of pressing on me until I essentially hit pause on our relationship in a way I was, we had a perfectly polite, friendly, adult, civil relationship for many years, but I, we weren't emotionally close. It was all very, um, it was very rational and it was, focused around talking about sports and world events and presidential elections and that kind of thing. And, you know, what happened when the tree fell down on this property, but nothing about your heart or what you care about or uh, sort of nothing deeper. It was, a, it was, it was, it felt like, you know, you were talking to a, you know, a graduate student talking to his professor at, university about a time. <laughs> um, so I wanted to fix that and, and understand that. And, and, um, that's, that was the beginning of it. And I was sort of, you know, as he got sicker, I went down and saw him more and, and, um, began to sort of think about his effect on me and then my effect on our children. Um, and, and just trying to be, and being a father and, 
what that meant in our family. And it kind of grew out of that um, very slowly. And then with a certain amount of later rewriting that we can talk about or not, um, depending on your appetite for the gruesome details. But um, <laughs> the original genesis was simply uh, me trying to, you know, I, I'd written a book earlier about that was motivated by the death of my mother. And it was after she died that it kind of grew out of that. And then this one, I felt like maybe I should make an effort. And she died unexpectedly, um, and which is a shock of one kind. And I felt like I could see this one coming and I wanted to get ahead of it and try to get closer to him before, before we died, before he died. Mm-hmm. So in, in the, the memoir about your mother, that was the one that came out in 2009? Yes. Yeah. It's called Cheerful Money. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, it's interesting. There, what, 13 years, 14 years between books. Um, when did you start in the early times? I think I started, or it's hard to like remember now, but I, I would say roughly 2019 mm-hmm. um, is when I started sort of writing. I've been kind of keeping notes and and thinking about it probably for a year or two before that. Um, and I didn't, it wasn't even necessary. I've been sort of keeping notes and thinking, well, maybe there's going to be a book in it, but it was, it was more a project of just me paying more attention to my father and thinking about it that way. It wasn't like the idea was like, I have to write a book. I guess I'd probably said like, I, I phrased it as if it were, but it actually was more just me thinking about him and trying to feel my way and talk my way with him into a better understanding. Um, and I don't know, at a certain point it felt like, oh, there's, I, you know, this could, this could be a book. Hmm. I, I found it um, such an honest memoir. I mean, memoir, it, you know, it's like, are we more truthful in writing fiction or are we more truthful in writing memoirs? Sometimes you feel that the writer, the memoirist is kind of hiding behind, behind a screen, even though it's a memoir. And with this book, I felt like it was so honest at times. And, um, you know, that's, that's obviously one of the um, necessities of a memoirist is to try to, to be that. But how was that for you? I mean, your father was still living when you wrote the book. You um, are married. You wrote a lot about your marriage. Um, I mean, talk about that aspect of writing a memoir, like having to kind of own up to the truth. Well, it's an, you're right that it feels sometimes feels like in a memoir, someone's writing from a stance of a certain kind or, or even, and perhaps not even consciously, um, even when people are talking to their therapist, they often don't say everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's just because you think in some part of your brain, you're like, oh, I don't want to do that yet, or that'll make me look bad, or I'm not sure how I feel about laying that out. Maybe it's too much and I'll get to it later. There's a lot of small, quick, furtive rationalizations, I think, that can cross your mind. And I'm, I think I was guilty of them too. And, and, and maybe even in the finished version, who knows? I mean, I tried not to be, but, but, um, but certainly in the, in the earliest version of it, um, I think it was, it was a little bit more of a portrait of myself and my dad from, 
from the outside and more observed and less felt. And then after he died, um, he made me his literary executor. He, he, you know, I have a brother and a sister, but um, I was the one who was sort of tasked with going through his papers and his papers were voluminous. He was a historian and he had a, more than 20 file cabinets full of um, files. And a lot of them were like his tax returns going back to 1956 uh, for some reason uh, that he kept because uh, he was a historian. He believed every artifact, you know, might be full of ore at some point. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that was not of much interest, but there was also a lot of stuff that he, he kept kind of these um, makeshift journals as he, as he lived, you know, he, he would write down impressions and dreams and confessions and realizations and poems and haiku on napkins and restaurant menus and post-it notes and legal pads and just sort of throw them all into these files that would be like labeled, you know, brevities 1965 to 1968. Um, and there was a lot of that that was his, his filing system seemed to be sort of alphabetical and but then occasionally you'd come across something that was just a big wad of confession. <laughs> um, so I was going through that and I realized I didn't really, I'd always thought of him as the logical, you know, historian. And there was so much more that I, he hadn't let us see because he didn't feel comfortable with it or it seemed too troubling to do, to put anywhere, but in his, his own files. And I think I was, so I understood him in a deeper way. And then I felt like, Oh, if I'm going to write about that, him in that way, I, you know, like I, I have to go to that um, level myself too, which was harder. Um, and one of the things he'd written about was, you know, his infidelities and I had to write about mine and, um, the, uh, that was, that was hard. That was like not pleasant. And, um, it was, I wished he'd been still alive and, and we could have talked about some of those things. And I wish we talked about them a lot earlier because then maybe I wouldn't have been unfaithful because I would have understood the challenges of it, uh, in terms of like, presenting who you, the, the face you present to the world and not presenting that face and not being that person and not betraying the people closest to you and not feeling awful, um, both in a long sort of secret way. And then also particularly awful when my wife found out about it and we had to tell our kids and, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, a it wasn't the process I signed up for. I thought I'd signed up for when I started writing the book. Um, which was going to be, you know, an elegiac look at my dad. <laughs> and then it ended up uh, being a, you know, like, a, I guess a, a more kind of opening up the, all the pipes, look at myself and my dad and how we become who we are uh, and my, me trying to grapple with it. And it felt like a different kind of feeling and writing than maybe I'd done earlier just because, I hadn't gotten to that level of candor and self-examination because who wants to do that? It's really painful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I like, I like so much of what you have to say about writing in the book. And um, I think one of my favorite, if not my favorite lines is, uh, is, is uh, on page 197, you say Dave turned to fiction so he could tell his story without having to wound anyone too much. 
I stuck with nonfiction to tell mine because I'd wound you if I had to. And I went, yeah, okay, <laughs> let's talk about that. Because that's really, I mean, those are the memoirs I want to read where the writer is willing to do that, um, to go to those places. Um, could you could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, even hearing you read that aloud, I was kind of wincing because <laughs> I think I think it's true, but I also it's not something I'm super proud of. Like <laughs> at the same time, even though I think it's true and also necessary to be to be really candid, you, you know, you kind of have if you want to be candid about some someone else, you have to talk about their flaws as well as their strengths. I, I so I was trying to do that, you know, with my dad, but I also, my, my kind of counterbalancing rule that I hope I stuck to, um, was to be as hard or harder on myself than on other people. Like that only feels fair. If you're going to, if you're going to wound someone, you also have to turn the knife around and aim it at your own heart. It feels to me like that. Otherwise you're just, you know, you're you're sniping. You're not, you're not like on the battlefield. Exactly. I don't know why I'm using war metaphors and it doesn't feel like war, but there's something sort of hit and runnish about just taking a shot at someone and then pretending that you you yourself aren't guilty of the same thing if you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's the hard part is, you know, like when you say things that are wounding, people get wounded. And often when you say things that you don't intend to be wounding, people get wounded. That's um, the weird thing about meta- uh, memoir is that, um, or any kind of writing really is always that people are often deeply hurt by the thing that you thought was merely a piece of like, you know, he had a carefully cropped mustache and then people are like, I do not, you know, (laughs) um, it's, it's not carefully cropped. It's a luxuriant Van Dyke or whatever. They get really amazed (laughs) about stuff that you're just like, well, that just, you know, it just seems like, you know, he's five foot 11. No, I'm not, you know, like they, there's often a lot of particularly about physical things or, but anytime you mention, you know, anything that, uh, you know, there was, I, I, in, in my earlier book, I talked about my grandmother's third husband's alcoholism, which was not exactly a secret, but, uh, you know, so I think some people in his family got upset about that. And people do, um, if you just mention anything that is considered a family matter or a secret, um, people get alarmed and upset and that is understandable. Um, because most people aren't used to having family matters turned out, but then, you know, uh, there's probably some good bit of advice to people to never give birth to a writer, but um, (laughs) it's hard to predict. Yeah, it it is. Well, you you say that, um, your, your dad wanted you to be a historian or a spiritual pilgrim. And what did he think about you as a writer? Cause you, I think, um, were you always a writer? I know you started at the New Yorker, what, 1998, something like that? Yes. Yeah, I was a, I wasn't sure what I was going to do after college, but I ended up, I'd, I'd written something in college and I liked it. And I wasn't always like, I'm going to be a writer, come hell or high water, but I, there was a lot of, there were a lot of writers in my family, mostly historians. Um, and I definitely didn't want to be a historian because I just associated it with 
the academic life. And my dad had been president of Swarthmore College, and we'd grown up sort of around that world, and it seemed familiar and unpleasant. <laughs> uh, I guess just all the discussion at the dinner table about, you know, the, uh, the Henry Kissinger line, I think it is about, I'm paraphrasing badly, but it's something about the, the reason that the fights in academia are so fierce is because the stakes are so small. Um, <laughs> and it felt like that. There was just a lot of, you know, fighting over small matters. Um, and uh, so he, in, in, in a, getting back to your question, I think, you know, he, he supported the idea of me being a writer. He, and he it turned out that he liked my writing, uh, that came out later. Um, but he also often felt like my, my subjects weren't worthy of attention. You know, that if I wrote a piece about a couple of guys who found buried treasure on Jan Winter's property in Sun Valley and, um, what happened to it, that it wasn't, you know, I should be writing about something loftier and more lasting than that. Um, so I think you sort of had a historian's lens where pretty much anything short of writing about Alexander the Great was not going to be, you know, was going to be ephemeral. Um, so there's a lot of that and, and a lot of sort of skepticism about my subject. So at a certain point, I kind of turned off stopped listening to him about it because I was like, I'm writing about what I want to, gah, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, and he stopped talking about it because he realized I was sort of like putting my fingers in my ears. Um, but I, at the same time, I, I think, and he also, in we had a difficult couple of conversations about my earlier book, you know, which um, I, you know, first, which actually was, came about the opposite way where I wrote a piece for the New Yorker that was about my mom after she died and about how you basically, if you walked into her house, you would instantly know what kind of person she was just from the way she'd arranged her house. Um, and then I, and then I sort of felt like, oh, there's maybe a bigger topic here about wasps. And so I wrote a book about my larger family. Um, and he, I sent him the piece before it came out because I you know he's, he, he was sensitive and he was fine with it. And then as soon as it came out and people were like, Oh, that was sort of hard on you and hard on Elizabeth, my mom. Um, then he sort of had second thoughts about it. And then he had third thoughts because he came back and was like, Oh, it's actually better than I thought. And then I wrote the book and I sent it to him and he was fine and then came out and same thing. There's a lot of like, you know, him being, having multiple thoughts, but then later, later in his life, he wrote me a lovely note about how he'd gone back to reread cheerful money and, and found it lovely and all his criticisms were laid aside. So it was, it was hard to know. It was a little bit of a random number generator. Sometimes like what kind of response we're going to get. <laughs> what do you think he would have uh, thought about this one? Had he been alive to read it? Well, it's funny. A couple of people who've read the book have said, Oh, your dad would have loved the book. And I was like, would he? <laughs> um, I think he would have loved it in about 10 years. That seems to be his, uh, been his pattern or at least maybe five years. Like he would have come around to it. I don't, you know, I don't know how he would have felt about me talking about his infidelity. It's probably not great. Um, uh, 
And I don't know that I would have if he were still alive. Emperor would have maybe been a conversation, but he didn't let us know about them when he was alive. So that foreclosed the possibility of that conversation. Um, I think he might have, yeah, come around to it, but he would have been probably shocked and upset at the beginning. Mm. Hmm. Because he kept it everything so private, he didn't want people to see him in any way other than someone who is uh, cerebral, uh, self-confident, and on top of things. And, you know, the the person in his journals was not those any of those things. I mean, he was he was all those things in public life and even at the breakfast table, but he was not those things when he was talking to himself. Hmm. You know, I wanted to, there's so many great lines in this book and great sentences. And I think that that must be what impressed me about your essay, which, you know, to your point earlier, it, it was complete enough. If there had not been a book forthcoming, I would have loved the essay just as much um, because of, God, the language and, and your writing, it just is pretty, pretty dazzling. And, and I, I found a line in this book, a Faulkner quote, something to the effect of writing isn't about sentences. And I'd love to hear you talk about craft or when, when the polish comes. I mean, do, do, do these sentences fall out of you like this? Or is that part of what happens in revision? Um, or is it a little of both? It's a little of both, but more the revision. Like I, I think very broadly speaking, and this is probably instantly disprovable, so I, I'm offering it very tentatively. But I think <laughs> very broadly speaking, there are two kinds of writers. There are writers who can only write the second sentence of something when the first sentence is perfect, and then they can go to the second one, and they can go to the third one. Then there's writers like me who can only write the first sentence after they've written the thousandth sentence and they go back and then they keep revising. And I probably revised the whole manuscript like eight times or 12. I don't even know, like a lot um, more like some umpteen. <laughs> uh, and, and it changes quite a lot. Like each, I wrote sort of chapter by chapter and, you know, and then I would sort of revise the chapter and then I put it aside and then I would go back and revise the first three chapters. And, and then the chapter order changed a lot. So then as when you change the chapter order, you have to revise again because something you'd set up now doesn't pay off because it is in a chapter that precedes the thing you set up. So there's a lot of that. Um, some of the sentence did, did come out sort of, you know, you're just writing and you're in that kind of fever dream of writing where you're not even, your fingers are doing something independent of your brain. Um, and that is nice and that doesn't, but that doesn't always happen. A lot of writing is kind of, you know, it's like beating a rented mule to get it to go where you're trying to go. And um, most of it is, I actually love the, the revision part. That's about the last 10% when you feel like it's pretty good. It's in the ballpark of like goodness. And if you, you know, if you keeled over right then a really good editor could kind of polish it up and send it off. Um, so you've kind of, you've, you've gotten to the f sort of around the clubhouse turn and now you're heading for home. That part where you, you can massively improve things in your own mind, even though most people might not even notice the difference, um, by 
cutting out a few words or moving the sentence ahead of the one three sentences above it um, or, you know, fixing the clauses a little bit. And you can sort of feel like, oh, now it works. And before it was almost working um, and you get all the sort of horses and harness and running together is lovely and, and it feels great to me. Um, the part that's the brutal slogging muddy track business of getting to the clubhouse turn. Uh, you know, I, I don't think any, any writer ever speaks of it with joy. Hmm. So are there stages then? I mean, do you first get down, did you first get down the draft and then go back and look at the parts or rearrange or like how might, how might the stages be? I wish I, I keep trying to come up with an overarching theory of like the four stages or the seven stages <laughs> or the seven habits of highly effective writers. I don't, I, I wish it feels like each project, even a New Yorker story, which is pretty long by magazine stories, but if you're writing an eight or 10,000 for a New Yorker story, I would love it if there were a template or an AI that could just sort of like tell you, here's the thing and here's your, here's your lead and here's your, and it feels like each one has to have its own map. Like you're a cartographer who has to create the map and then go to the country. And then having gone to the country, revise your map extensively and realize it doesn't look like Turkey at all. It looks like the, you know, Andaman Islands or it looks like, <laughs> um, you know, the Maldives or something. And you're like, oh, it's totally different. Um, and, and that, and that even that terrible metaphor that I just said is like indicates how, how much it is the groping process where I, I have to write an outline. I wrote an outline for this book and I revised the outline extensively until I felt like, okay, now I, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Okay. And then as soon as I started writing like 30 seconds into writing, I was like, oh, this outline totally sucks ass. Like, <laughs> like the thing I wanted to do in chapter seven has to be in chapter one. And the thing in chapter one, no one will understand until chapter four. And it's like, but I need that totally false confidence of like, okay, I've got, I've got this map. I'm going here. It's like the Columbus. It's like, I'm going to India the, the long way around. And that is, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And then you end up, you know, fetching up the Bahamas and, you know, then you turn around and go home. Like it's, it's, uh, but it's, it never works out the way it's supposed to, but after long trial and error, that's the only way you can do it. Like knowing and trying to suppress the notion, the knowledge that it's going to be, that the outline is terrible. I have to sort of just, no, it's going to be, this is going to, you know, it's like running at the football and then Lucy snatches it away, but Charlie Brown is convinced he's going to kick the football every time. And <laughs> that, that feels like that to me. Um, and that's why getting in a very, very long winded way, for which I apologize, back to your earlier question about your point about writing sentences versus structure. That's why I feel like structure is the hardest thing. I feel like you know, most, you know, people who write can write a sentence that's perfectly good or maybe even quite good or maybe even dazzling. Uh, but then putting them in, in an order that feels surprising but also inevitable and that works over long periods of time where you don't feel too much of a letdown or you don't feel like you're learning something you've already learned or you don't feel like you're learning something you have no idea was coming or feel totally unprepared for in the bad way. Uh, and there's probably two hours of conversation about preparing some, someone something in the good way versus the bad way or something <laughs> feels un unexpected and surprising and not like, you know, you've just been clubbed in the back of the neck. 
Um, <laughs> and I don't even know like how that, but you sort of feel your way along and think, okay, yeah, I think this works because it should. Or and then your editor tells you like, I was totally like blindsided by this thing and it doesn't make sense. Um, so I don't know. It's it. Uh, I I honestly, in the film business, everyone always still refers to the thing that William Goldman said you know, more than a quarter century ago, which is nobody knows anything. <laughs> and I feel like that's also true for like structuring a book where I, it's, 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 it is a, a blind mole scrabbling underground and hoping to pop his nose up into the sunshine. <laughs> well, speaking about, speaking of structure there, it is sort of a nonlinear structure, right? I mean, you, I mean, you do begin at the beginning and end at the end, but in the meantime. <laughs> no, I started at the end. Go to the beginning, you didn't even notice. Um, yes, you're right. There is. You know, it kind of jumps around and, um, I, I tend to like, um, structures like this because it's, it's kind of like life and how we think about things and how we experience, um, living. But, you know, talk about coming up with the structure then. Well, um, there is a, the, the through line, the sort of beginning to end through line is my, is trying to follow, you start off meeting my dad where he's old, older and, and failing. And then it follows sort of the, the general sort of chronological through line of the book is that you follow him as he gets weaker and older. And as I learn more about him too. Uh, that's sort of the chronological through line. And then the rest of it is more associative. Like, I think it's, it's organized a little bit around, you know, topics like playing squash, which my dad taught me and which I started to play. And that becomes a chapter about, you know, our relationship in some ways and also about um, inheritances and also about any number of other things, but they're all sort of associative, which is, I think the way we experience life. Like we don't, you know, you, you're thinking something and then at least you're thinking about something else and you don't even remember how you got to the third thing unless you go back and laboriously unwind it and, and think, why am I thinking about my third grade teacher? Um, how did I get there? Um, but it shouldn't feel totally, I mean, associative is not the same as random, I think. Um, and the danger, of course, is that it just feels like, um, you know, it feels like dots on the page and you never pull back to see like, oh, it's, it's actually a Seurat painting where the dots form a picture that I didn't even realize was there. And that's what you're trying to do, but, and is do the dots in a way that seem interesting in and of themselves. And then also hopefully the reader can pull back and you can help her pull back to see that there's a, you know, it's a, you know, lovely painting of an outdoor picnic. Um, and that part, I don't, I don't even like it, 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 it feels, it's like, I wish I, I wish I, again, I wish I, there was a, a rule of here's the three things for how to do that. I, I wish there were, there probably are, but just no one knows what those three things are because I feel like I often in writing a chapter where I, I would just end up thinking, okay, the chapter has to begin here and end there. And then very often it would be like, no, the chapter shouldn't begin here. It should begin there and everything else should be moved around. And I think people, I'm amazed that sometimes when I look at like an early draft of a chapter and I realize like every single sentence and every single paragraph has ended up in a different place than it started. It's, it's quite, 
it's there's sort of an earthquakey thing that happens where everything gets jumbled around and I don't know. And then I, I finally either get tired of it or I just decide, well, it's sort of more or less doing what I hoped. I hope. Fingers crossed. Mm. So there has to be, it sounds like there has to be a certain amount of trust you have in your own process. Yeah, I think the, 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 the bad part is I have realized there's no template that works for every story. There are certain things I've realized I, you know, that are, that I, can lean on ways of telling stories, but, but I, but there's, but there's no, you know, A, B, C, D, E structure that works, but I also do at this point have a certain amount of faith that I can now start out in my ship and aim it in a certain direction. And it will eventually hint at some kind of land somewhere. Um, and that is, I guess, encouraging, except, you know, you often get becalmed on the tropic of cancer and are just, sitting there in the horse latitudes, you know, eating rats from the hold. <laughs> um, so there's that part too, but you do have to have faith that eventually the, you know, the winds and the tides will take you somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you would read um, from in the early times and I found a section that I would especially love to hear you read if you, if you would be willing. Sure. It's a, uh, it starts the section. It's one of my favorite sections, actually. It starts. Um, it starts on one ninety seven, after the hiatus, and goes to the bottom of one ninety nine. Okay. And if you want to set it up, that'd be great too. Yeah. Um, so this is in a chapter, sort of uh, two thirds of the way through the book, or maybe a little more. Um, and I'm about to visit my dad on the way home from a reporting trip. And, um, this is the chapter has been sort of about our writing lives. He is a writer who also wrote a novel that, um, was very well received and then wrote a bunch of other novels, none of which got published. And I think he felt understandably frustrated by that. And, and he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to write fiction more fiction and get it published and um it uh it started the chapter of the it perhaps unnecessary but uh extra bit of vision it will be um let me just read the beginning of the chapter because i think okay. it sort of sets up um the beginning is uh you are a flat stone you begin to skip across the lake generating ripples because of the uncertain nature of fluid dynamics, once eddies have been created, a skipping stone could theoretically, once in a great while, cause the lake, lake itself to explode. And I think part of what I think about in the chapter is, you know, the, the, the dreams and expectations and hopes that writers or anyone has for their career and you know how much of an impact and a dent you want to leave on the world and the ways in which you try to do that and then sometimes and in fact 99.9 percent .9 of the time you fall short um so this is me getting home and my dad is in his house in villanova pennsylvania um with one of his caregivers and um i will read it okay uh after a day of reporting in Washington, D.C., 
a long, muggy day made sultrier by all the lobbyists. Let me start again. After a day of reporting in Washington, D.C., a long, muggy day made sultrier by all the lobbyists who'd hosed me with hot air. I visited Day on the way home. As usual, he was in the bathroom, banging around sounds and fucks issued from the baby monitor. I ate a banana as an Ada hadn't met a self-assured woman named Kanika, got Day into his PJs. He sat on the edge of his bed, swallowing his seven pills one by one. Do you want me to help you lay down now? Kanika said, then corrected herself. Lie down, even as Day was saying, it's lie, not lay. She grinned at me, having heard this distinction before. He amuses strong women, which vexes him, which amuses them even more. To forestall that dynamic, I said to him, do you remember how when your brother Charles was in the hospital near the end, a nurse told him to just lay there quietly, and he corrected her the same way, and then said, I'm still the house grammatician, and how to make her feel better, you told her, that's okay, the word is grammarian. I said that, he said. I nodded, and he laughed. At the time, he told me that he hoped to talk with Charles about their childhood. But that, it, but that it seemed to be too late. Charlie and I never talked about our parents, he said. It was disturbed ground, too much wounding and bleeding. Beginning to frown, he said, I hope Charles didn't hear me. He didn't, I said. I had no idea. I wasn't there. But he seemed so concerned. That's good, he said. For Marion. Was he your older brother, Kanika said? Younger, why do you ask? You seem like you were a younger brother. Because you, sometimes, because you sometimes act like a big baby. And you sometimes act like a pain in the ass. She chuckled. I was a middle child, that's probably why. Ignoring his scowl, she went on. Now, let's get you lying down. They did to muttered curses. When he was finally supine with the covers drawn up, she asked, would you like me to adjust the pillows? And he bellowed, no, just leave me alone with my son. Once Kanika had gone off to the kitchen, he said, I can't stand her. Knowing she could hear us on the monitor, I said, she seems fond of you, actually. A grin flitted across his face, but he shut his eyes, determined not to relinquish his grievance. So I said that I was finally writing another book. Good, he said. His eyes popped open. I think you have three memoirs in you, and you've only done one. What do you think this one should be about? The alleged future, he said quietly after a moment. I knew he was thinking that he probably wouldn't live to read it. And what should the last one be about, I said. Reflections and suppositions. So this one should look ahead and the last one should look back. That's how it works, he said. He shifted, settling. Will this one be about squash? There will be squash in it, I said. But it can't all be about squash. Why the hell not? That would reduce the readership even further. You're not trying to write a bestseller, are you? I'm not trying to write a worse seller either. He laughed rumblingly and winced. Then he sighed, a long, weary sigh, and pulled at his pillow already forgetting. I should let you get some sleep, I said. Do you need anything? Only your company, he said. He reached out his hand. Don't go just yet. The ripples are reaching, have reached their full amplitude, but the lake is glassy and you are still hugging the shore. That last paragraph knocks me out. I that, and that's such an emotional section. Um, but that last paragraph, tell me that didn't just come out like that. That you had to really work it. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> well, most of the time you do that one. That one, I think, 
came fairly much out of it. Like that was a, that was a moment where the, the fingertips were just, you know, working the keys on their own. And it felt like that, you know, felt like that mm -hmm. fit for that moment. Um, I think it might've been that I wrote the last paragraph, like as a separate little mini thing at the end, but I knew I wanted to go right after mm -hmm. um, that scene. And then I joined them together because it felt like it was better if there wasn't a space. Mm -hmm. but, but I, but I think it felt like that, you know, yeah, somehow worked in a way that I, if I had to explain it, it would sound really dorky. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a beautiful paragraph. I, I love that. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the line, uh, what unites us is aspiration that falls short. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, that's, that's about the human race, right? But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are people like Usain Bolt who don't fall short and who break world records. Most of us don't have that experience. Um, and then it seems to me the business of living is figuring out, you know, how to be happy and, and achieve joy and satisfaction in the gray zone that's you know, short of your target, you know, and or your original target in order to figure out where to recenter your target and, and to do it all. This is the really hard part. I think if you have children without burdening your children with your own failed target and making, making wanting them to go achieve it for you, which is the, is a hard part and something you can often do unconsciously where you're sort of, you know, there's, you know, sort of the, little league dadness of it where you're shouting from the sidelines <laughs> and you're really shouting at a younger version of yourself. Yeah. Um, I think that's part of the job too. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about balancing backstory with front story, not letting the backstory overwhelm the front story and not, and yet, you know, getting enough in there so that, we understand the past. Um, it's a it's a super hard topic that, and your I think implicit in your question is is the acknowledgement that it's very easy to not have to. It's very easy to put in too much more than the reader needs, and it's also easy to elide things and think, well, by now the reader should understand, and then realize like, well, actually. They have no idea who you're talking about and you have to remind them <laughs> because <laughs> the perfect reader, you know, the perfect reader reads your book in one sitting, no matter how long it is, even if it's war and peace, they just stay up for 48 hours and, you know, and, and take a bunch of amphetamines and read it. Um, that there is no really perfect reader or there are very few. So in that sense, so, so you have to remind people subtly without making them feel condescended to like, oh, this is that person that I talked about hundred pages ago. Um, the, I don't, you know, like I, again, it's sort of a feel thing. There's no golden rectangle of formula where it's like, you know, two parts backstory to seven parts. <laughs> it's, it's sort of the thing that I, one of the sort of writing techniques or procedures that I've realized is a good way to smuggle in either backstory or, um, 
necessary context, which may be sort of um, not so much backstory as, um, you know, the penumbra of details around something that you need to know that's going on in the present, um, is to have, is, is in a scene where you're talking to someone or people are talking. Because then, then you can, like, if I'm talking to my dad and I, you, and I can fill in some details about how, like, he, you know, he and his, his, he and his brother never talked about their childhood. That illuminates, I think, the scene because my dad and I never talked that much about my childhood. So in a way, you can kind of do that without it feeling like, you know, you're just putting your big thumb on the scales. But you can smuggle in information that helps the reader understand the scene and they will take it as the spoonful of sugar um, rather than as the medicine. Um, I think if you like, if it feels like you're, the information you're getting is helping you understand the, why the two people are talking about something or giving you more context, it goes down a lot easier than if you just give seven unadorned paragraphs of like, here's this stuff you really need to know to understand, <laughs> which, you know, so you try to do it in a way that, that feels a little more seamless and a little easier to digest, I guess. Um, but I don't know that there's, I think you, you, I guess probably if you, I hadn't thought about this until now, so this may be totally wrong. It probably is, but I feel like if you, the, the, the less backstory you can get away with, the better. Um, and so it's, it shouldn't feel like backstory too much. Um, it should feel like it's a story in and of itself in some way or something that doesn't, that's, I mean, one either advantage or possible drawback, depending on your take of, of doing a sort of having a lot of the, the material be not strictly chronological and jumping around a little bit is that it, hopefully it doesn't feel like backstory or front story. Mm -hmm. It feels like wherever you are in that moment is, you know, where I was when I was seven or 23 or where my dad was when he was 32. And it feels like it's, it's kind of a, a, a bouncing present. Hmm. Maybe, maybe in part, what you do here is you're writing in scene. So it's not, you know, I remember when, but instead you're presenting, presenting these moments as scenes so that we can, the reader can see them and experience them along with you. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know that I ever use the phrase I remember when, um, because then I just picture like someone in a rocking chair and, <laughs> you know, like, and creak, creak on the front porch and then right. a, a grandchild who is really bored, like trying to get away. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, I think it's, it's more interesting if it feels like it's taking place in front of you and you're, it's happening now. You yeah. Know? Um, flashbacks in a movie happen now, you know, when they're happening. Um, we know that it's in the past, but when, you know, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman are in Paris, we're experiencing that as mm -hmm. they did, mm -hmm. even though it was earlier. Um, and I think that that's, you know, you want that feeling of immediacy and you want that sense of like, even though you know that they're going to break up somehow, you want to feel like you almost don't know that. And like, you're thinking, well, maybe they should be able to meet at the train station and get out together. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, so yeah, if you can, if you can present it in such a way that you that you don't necessarily know how it's going to turn out in the, in the immediate scene, 
that adds, I think, to the interest of it. Hmm. You know, I was curious. I wanted to ask you about your author's note um, about changing names and um, and why. Why did you need to do that? Um, well, I think it goes back to my earlier rule about trying to be harder on myself than mm. other people. And um, so the names are changed of people I was involved with. You know, they're, most of the people's names, whose names are changed were people I was involved with outside my marriage. And um, so I felt like, you know, obviously they were involved too, but I felt like I just, you know, this was, these were my mistakes and I didn't want to mm-hmm. drag, the, drag them into it. Sure. Um, and in the case of like the, there's also people in a, a therapy group um, and that felt like it was mm-hmm. meant to be confidential. And so therefore yeah. um, they didn't want to name them. That's always a question um, I get from students in terms of, you know, how much do we have to keep everything exactly as it was and what can we change? And, and uh, you know, there's sort of a little gray area there. I mean, it's memoirs, so you want it to be true, right? <laughs> you want You want all of this stuff to have happened, and yet yeah. there are things that you may need to disguise well, think- a little bit. Yeah, and I think if you do, then and you know, say, acknowledging that you've done so is mm-hmm. helps. You know, the, the larger question, of course, is like you know, anyone else, like my dad, would if we had written about the same period of our lives, would have written a different book. Um, you know, it, it, you want it to be true to your own experience, um, and that's going to be different than my brother writing a book, or you know, uh, or my children writing a book about the mm-hmm. same years there. It's all going to, you know, everyone has a different perspective on it and we'll take even the same conversation rendered literally. If we both wrote about it. We would probably have different things that we would be writing between the bits of conversation about what it meant because mm-hmm. it meant, meant different things. You know, the things that, you, that I've discovered or that things that you've, you know, you know, I think Nora Ephron said that the, the things, the two things that kids remember, from their childhoods or when you didn't show up when you were supposed to and when they vomited. And <laughs> that's kind of it. Like you don't necessarily remember the same things. I mean, you feel bad about things that they don't remember at all. And you probably should be feeling bad about things they remember deeply and searingly that you didn't even notice at the time because you were doing something else that you should, when you should have been more focused on them. So um, I think there's a difference though, between being true to your own perspective and and trying to ruthlessly follow it wherever it goes and saying, you know, and then Tom Cruise came by and he and I talked when in fact you met Tom Cruise, you know, um, just bring, or it would have been better if Tom Cruise had come by. So look, I'm going to bring him in here because, uh, or just making shit up where you can usually feel it. Like, (laughs) you know, like there are things I'm not going to name, but I can think of a pretty well-known memoir where I'm convinced in my heart of hearts, that it's like 75% made up just because everything's so pat and people who have to give the, the writer lessons in life come along at just the right moment. Mm-hmm. And you're like that. No, that, I mean, maybe, it, I mean, there is a slight chance it happened in which case the person is the most fortunate person ever um, because they're living in this weird parable where people, you know, birds come <laughs> along and drop things into your hand at the right moment. So you can, you know, uh, you know, 
cleaning the audience tables or whatever it might be. But uh, mostly that's not how it works. And if it feels like convenient and tricked up, it probably is. Mm-hmm. Are there writers who've influenced you more than other writers? Are there books you turn to again and again or reread um, because of your love for them or for what they've taught you? Yeah, I mean, most of the writers I think who have influenced me, it's, it's probably by osmosis. I mean, I think Claire O'Connor said that she she read Faulkner over and over, hoping by osmosis that somehow he would seep into her writing, even though she's a very different writer than he was. And, um, I, you know, I don't know that, like, I really love James Salter as a writer. He and I violently disagree uh, about, I mean, he's no longer with us, but he's not in the room right now disagreeing with me, but, but. Um, and I think, I think I would aspire to some of the, the, the like very, he, he had a kind of like sea glass like quality of writing something so that it was felt very, you know, like you could almost feel in your hand. It was very tactile the way he would present, um, scenes or moments. And it, it was very often very austere and perfect and like, and never a wasted word. And I aspire to that level, um, even at the same time as I sometimes find found his writing almost exasperating because it was so, it was like having like too much oxygen in the air, almost a little too rich or too poor or something. I don't know. I'm never, but it's something, something that admirable that I couldn't equal. Um, at the same time, it's like he he abhorred semicolons, and I I love semicolons, and so I would never want to follow his theory of never using a semicolon. Um, so um, there are books. The books I read over and over are books where I'm often just like, you know, I've read War and Peace like six times, and I skip over the chapters about history because they're really boring. But um, I just an enormous admirer without ever being able, you know, without ever thinking like, oh, wow, I'm just going to go write my own massive history of America. That's going to be like that. I just, it was just like, wow. Um, the, yeah. The sort of, I love the transit of Venus by Shirley Hazard, um, which is a novel again, where the writing is spectacular, but also the structure is spectacular. Um, uh, and I commend that. I would love to write like her. And again, it feels like, you know, nope, she's, great and she's on a you know super high level in terms of nonfiction, um there are books again i admire like i love let us not praise famous men by james agee mm -hmm. a totally different kind of writer than i am very um much more profuse and and willing to spend three or four more paragraphs than i probably would describing a chicken clucking around in the gravel um but in a way that i think is beautiful and powerful and affecting um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know, like in a weird way, I probably, I probably lean away from writers who I feel like might be sort of like me in some way stylistically. Years ago, I went in for a meeting at Esquire and a couple of writers, I mean, a couple of editors there were talking about, you know, what kind of pieces could I do for them? And they started talking about my style. I'm like, well, he's perfect for this because of, and I, at that point I was like almost humming to myself, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to know <laughs> what they thought 
what kind of writer they thought I was because I worried that then I would be trying to service their idea of it or I would become mannered in that thing or whatever it was. So I, I literally couldn't, can't remember what they were saying because I was like trying to just not listen. And mm -hmm. I, I effectively forgot it, whatever they said. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I might, I don't, you know, it's when you're like in college and afterwards, you, of course you, like I, I was hugely under the influence of a writer named Mark Harris in college when I wrote fiction. He wrote Bang the Drum Slowly, one of the great mm -hmm. novels, American novels. And it's about, it's allegedly about a baseball and a pitcher and a catcher and a catcher's dying of Hodgkin's disease. Um, but it's about all sorts of other things and it's great. And I, but he has a very distinctive um, style with a lot of misspellings um, and colloquialisms. And I fell under that spell, which was totally not me. Um, but, you know, for a brief period, I thought it might be. <laughs> and, I, and then you try it on and you, it's like trying on like a, a snappy fedora that looks great on someone else. And you try on it and <laughs> you're like, mm, wow, I look terrible. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. What about you? Um, the book is on audio as well. And you read the book. I did. That How was, was that? That was, uh, uh, it, you know, I admire the, even more than I ever have, like I admire whoever it is who does the Harry Potter books, um, on Audible, like, because first of all, they, you know, obviously there are people who are trained and skilled actors who can do different voices, which I totally can't. I found myself totally flummoxed by having to like, how do you do single quotations within double quotations and make it sound <laughs> different? How do you do italics, you know, like and without sounding just like you're having a seizure? Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I found myself, you know, I did go back. I, I felt like I was pretty bad at it. And I, I think I got better to some sort of adequacy maybe, or at least I read so fast that, you know, it was all over quicker, but, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I went back and said, I, can we please redo the first chapter? Because I realized like, okay, I got to slow down. I just done it. And it felt like a, it felt like a car accident. Like where I was like literally being like, where you're just like, you get hit in an intersection and you're flung free and you have no idea what happened. And you're kind of recreated afterward. And the thing you realize is how many different ways there are to read a sentence aloud and putting a subtly different stress on a given word changes the whole meaning of it. And it somehow it's very clear when I was writing it for the eye, but then writing for the ear is a little different. Mm. And sometimes I would find myself in a sentence and I'd be thinking like, please, please God make the sentence and it's going on and on. <laughs> and I got lost. I thought this clause was the one I should stress, but it turns out. <laughs> and it somehow, at least to my, it like works on the page. But writing for the year, as I said, is, is different. And so I, there's a certain amount of like, let me try that sentence again. Um, and sort of sometimes wishing I, you know, chop things out a little bit more. Everyone always says you should read all your, your stuff aloud. And then, and I probably will from now on because you find things out. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are little patches that feel like maybe you're just trying for something that might might work okay, but maybe is a little suspect because you're it's a little highfalutin, and, and the, the the ear kind of detects highfalutinness, I think, better than the eye. It's mm, interesting, yeah. Reading aloud um, does help, right? You find all sorts of things. Yeah, and none of them are good. 
<laughs> it's like a house inspection. You never, they, they don't, the house inspector doesn't come out and say, you know, your chimney is amazing. <laughs> and we have found that the joists are perfect. No, it's like termites, vermiculite, you know, uh, your electric is in knob and tube and needs to be brought up to code. That's what you discover. Yeah, that's what you find. We're at the end of our time, and I wonder, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. And I wonder if there's anything we missed or any advice that you've been given along the way that has stayed with you that you want to uh, pass on to our listeners. I think talent is a mystery. Like, there are plenty of talented writers who never do much with their talent, and there are plenty of untalented writers um, seemingly quote-unquote untalented writers like Theodore Dreiser like if you talk about reading sentences that are bad like his sentences are often like you know a freshman English class he would get like a C minus they're pretty <laughs> bad he read aloud read on the page they're clunky and yet somehow like somehow through sheer determination and will you know he wrote these amazing novels that that where you could just the force of his yearning to break through the cage of his own the bars that he he that constituted his sentences <laughs> his determination to kind of like thrust a hand through them toward the sun is moving and you feel it and and that is something that is his talent was for ferocious striving and determination and that's a different kind of talent so i feel like it 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 does, if you, if you are determined to write and determined to tell your story, you'll figure out a way to do it, even if you feel like at times, you know, your, your paint box is small. Mm. You know, often students are hoping for a better vocabulary or, a, you know, better story or better this or that. And, and, uh, Sometimes all those worries are just kind of in the way of what yeah. you're doing. You can have a, you know, like Henry James wrote a story about, you know, someone who was a, who had nothing happened to and, and Robert Musil wrote a novel, The Man Without Qualities. Like you can write great things in which nothing seems to happen. Like I, I just read The Magic Mountain for some reason, and it's it kept expecting something to happen and nothing ever does, but it's still a great book. Um, I think uh, Mary Carr, who's a friend of mine, when I was writing Triple Money, um, and I was, I had the same sort of worries. Well, you know, I grew up in a pretty, you know, like philosophy family and we had, you know, I got sent to a nice school and a nice college and, you know, there was never any, no one was hitting me with a belt. And your point was, <laughs> Uh, she said, nothing, nothing is anything until you write it. Mm. And so that even if you have had, you know, the mixed blessing of a really difficult childhood or have it over, you know, overcoming all these obstacles and you can't write about it, then it's just happens to be your childhood, but it's not going to connect to other people's. And even if you've had, you know, what seems like a beautiful, lovely life, you know, one of the lessons in life is the people you admire for think are effortless and think have perfect lives do not, um, that kind of no one, no one gets out unscathed. Um, so 
it's just how you tell it. And, you know, you know, if you tell it in a way that, that brings people into what it's really like, that's, that's a huge victory. If you can, if you can make it, make other people feel what it would be like to be you or to be the person you're writing about that once you get there, you, you've, you know, you've just done the 80 yard run through all 11 defenders. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's great advice and uh, a great, a great place to, to end, I suppose. Um, it's just been such a pleasure talking with you about in the early times and about writing and everything else. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. I really enjoyed it. That was Tad Friend, author of In the Early Times. This episode was produced on July 7th, 2022. The music and sound editing is by Travis Barrett. And I should say that if you like the music, go to Spotify. Look up Just My Type. You'll find, I think it's seven songs that's uh, done with typewriter and other instruments by Travis. If you want to know more about the show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host, Marie Stonermy, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. Thank you for listening. <laughs>